You've been fiddling with that camera for ages. What on earth are you doing? I'm trying to take a picture. Can't you just point it at something and press a button? Um, well, I could, but you've got to think about timings, exposures, framing the picture. You can't just run out and just snap a picture. There's no fun in that. Well, especially as today is World Photography Day. Well, that does sound a bit dangerous for us because it's a topic that we both can get pretty nerdy about. Well, it's not as dangerous as the Prosecco was, <laughs> although agreed we do both love photography. So what's World Photography Day about? Well, it's a world day as opposed to a national day, and it aims to inspire photographers across the planet to share a single photo that shares their world with the world. So I'm going to share some of our world with the world, maybe a picture of the OBRV. Do I need to say cheese? Yes, definitely. Cheese! <laughs> <laughs> so welcome everybody to the day's podcast. I'm Amanda Donnells Bewley. And I'm Ian Smith. Today we are celebrating World Photography Day. Waiting in the luxury of the day's podcast green room is Ilkley-based photographer Mark Waddington. Let's open the green room door. Oh, it never gets old. You love that joke. Yes, I love all repetitive jokes that annoy everybody. And I still haven't watched Hamilton, so let's let that go, shall we? get that over with as well. (laughs) That's your favourite, favourite joke. It's not a joke. No, it's it's a very simple question, but now it's becoming a joke. Because I am like a goldfish going round in a bowl going, oh, look at that, and then going round again, oh, look at that, (laughs) completely forgetting the first 300 revolutions. (laughs) That's true. Should we go and speak to Mark then? I think we should. Okay. Well, good morning, Mark. It's lovely to meet you. Nice to meet you too. If only virtually. (laughs) (laughs) We're delighted to have you on today's episode for World Photography Day. We've seen some of your stunning pictures that you've published on Flickr, and obviously there's some links to that um, on the day's podcast website. But before we get into talking about the pictures, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how we come to be interviewing you today? Well, it's quite a long story. I mean, Ian and I both have been Flickr addicts for some time now, and uh, we used to meet up in Ilkley with a few other people who were also on Flickr. And that was um, a great experience, just sort of meeting people, uh, not just online and virtually in comments and likes and things, but actually meeting the real people. So we used to go down to Cafe Nero in Ilkley. And the joke was that, you know, we'd end up having coffee and talking about everything other than photography. So, <laughs> so the whole thing was really more social than it was photography. But what I liked about it was that photography was the way into it. That's a big thing for me about photography. It's a way into other things, really. So, yes, that's how we met. And in terms of my own photography, like most people, you know, their granddad gave them a camera when they were eight and, <laughs> and uh, you know, they started taking pictures on a box brownie and uh, if you're that old. Um, and then it progressed from there. And, and for a lot of people, there's a big gap, you know, where, um, you know, they got involved with work Digital photography hadn't come along. And then as soon as digital photography kicks in, they they return to their passion for photography. But my career also was as a BBC producer. So, you know, my whole world has has been around framing pictures. So it continues to be a big part of my, my career, my interest. And I think it's brilliant, really. I also have very fond memories of, uh, of sitting in Cafe Nero trying to talk about photography and then trying to go out and take some pictures and finding that already two hours had gone past. 
looking at what you're doing today in terms of photography, um, looking at your Flickr account, what cameras are you using to capture those, those pictures? Well, uh, the choice of camera is interesting because I, I didn't really sort of think about the camera too much, but I've got a very old Canon 5D Mark II. Um, it is very old now. And I was thinking about upgrading it and looking at the, the, the choice of cameras. You know, you can pay enormous sums of money for, for cameras. Oh, yeah. And it led me to think that the whole marketing around cameras is to do with megapixels and so on. I mean, you look at, you look at the new mirrorless cameras from Canon and you think, you know, £4,000 for a camera, uh, it's absolutely wow. ridiculous. So uh, what, I, what I started to look at was really just looking at old cameras be simply because they were cheap. And I picked up a few from the local auction um, and then th thought, well, you know, what, what do I do with these? And they didn't have the right spools and things like that. But eventually my dad handed over a few old cameras to me that he'd been using. So that rekindled a relationship with him over photography so uh, you know that that was a brilliant thing so we, we started talking about photography um, you know he lent me some of his old darkroom equipment and so on um, so I, I bought some chemicals and started processing the films from these cameras on which I'd spent virtually no money so uh, you know for me it was an economic decision but it was also a bit of an emotional one about rekindling the conversations with my dad and also I felt that it was, it was about experimentation as well, because although the pictures can be perhaps not as clear or as sharp as some of the, some of the new digital cameras, the quality of the images is, I, I think, quite special. It, it's, they're much more organic, much more real in some senses. So um, playing around with the development times and the exposure times and, and things like that gave a real opportunity to experiment and play around. So what I felt was that I'd, I was creating the photographs rather than the camera, which I think is a really important um, aspect of that. Do you think in the age of digital photography that that's something that we've lost or is it just a different process? Because be before we started sort of recording, we were talking about the nostalgia of the dark room and we've all had that, all three of us uh, talking today, we've had that experience. But I think, you know, there is... It's, I, I think digital photography and uh, good old-fashioned film is like comparing apples and pears. It looks, sometimes it can look the same, but it's not. Well, I mean, what do you feel about that? Yeah, well, photography is, is communication, and communication is about connection, isn't it? It's about connection uh, between people. Uh, I mean, my, my brother came over and he said, I can smell something. What, what's that smell? And it was the... It was the smell of the darkroom chemicals. So that created a connection between he and I. And as I say, my dad is interested in photography. That's creating a connection. And photography itself is a, is a channel for communication, isn't it? So it's, it's what does it mean? And I remember when I started at the BBC, I worked in news in, in Newcastle initially. And we were shooting on film. So 16mm uh, film, I think it was for the nightly news programme. So all the, all the stories had to be in by lunchtime in order to take them to the, the processing. And then they had to be back by four o'clock to allow a two-hour window to edit the films um, before they went onto the nightly news programme. So wow. that was a kind of... The technology determined the way news was gathered. So it wasn't just about the technology determining the look of the, of the images. It was determining the whole, you know, the whole process around it. 
But I remember when um, electronic news gathering came in for the first time and news was starting to be presented electronically, one of the first things that people started saying was, it didn't look real. This electronic news gathering looked somehow false. And so people found it difficult to believe that the images that they were looking at were representing the real things that that were in front of the camera because they looked so, I suppose, clearer, really. But it was what did the look and feel of the image mean in terms of communication? And I think think what we've got now is a quest for really clear digital images, but we've lost the sense of meaning. We've lost the sense of, I don't know, that, that organic connection with the subject, perhaps. And it looks a bit... I don't know, just a bit too real somehow. My daughter has recently got a Polaroid camera and a couple of weeks ago we went away for a few nights and and we bought some Polaroid film and she took these these really great pictures of my brother and myself and in our little camper van and I'd forgotten the colours, the smell, but also that these images can be like blurred and they can be not quite perfect and that's what we used to be used to and now we're so used to like digital images everything's super crisp and clear it's a whole different look and feel to an image and there's a whole culture now isn't there of artificially putting some of that imprecision back as well with filters and the like yeah i mean there's there's a there's a difference between you know, choosing something, choosing a look for a creative purpose and um, creating an effect just, just for, for its own sake, isn't there? And I think yeah. it's the intention of the photographer, isn't it, to um, decide on what they want to say through the photograph and what, their, what, their, what the meaning is. You know, what, what, do the, what does the photographer think, feel and believe about the scene in front of them? Yeah. And have they interpreted that within the photograph? Or is it just an effect created by a plug-in, created by the camera or whatever? So I think whatever you say about photography, it's got to represent some form of intention on the part of the photographer. Yeah, and it's funny, isn't it? We're so swamped in photography. There's so much content, uh, so many pictures. Having them printed on paper is now a bit of a special thing, isn't it? Yeah. before, it was the only way you could access the pictures you'd taken. Yeah, I mean, I think people are going to get fed up of looking at screens, aren't they? I mean, we've all been working from home, or many of us have been working from home, uh, staring at screens all day long um, on Zoom or whatever. I hope that there'll be a yearning for that, uh, you know, physical pictures in frames. And of course, the frame is really important, isn't it? And the presentation of the pictures, that makes such a difference. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's a whole sort of... A tranche of our society or the population who maybe are going to miss out on that very social part of family community where you sit down with the photo albums and you go, oh, there's Auntie Ethel at Bridlington on a donkey, you know, <laughs> and you yeah. share the share the history of your family through oral stories basically um, which are prompted by the photos Mm. Um, and I think if we're not careful we will miss out on that um, as a society. That's really really interesting isn't it yeah so there's there's a context for the for the photographs and also a story as well they're part of a an ongoing story and they represent um, you know moments in time but almost uh, you know lots of moments in time don't they and 
uh, and the the idea of a body of work or a collection of work you know at the end of your life in a big photograph album which tells your story is quite is quite important isn't it and i've heard terrible stories about people who just chuck out photographs they've been bequeathed by a relative or, or something and they end up thrown out or something i think holding on to these things is incredibly important i think so as well and sometimes a photo is all you have of somebody my father was killed when I was six weeks old, so I probably have five, six images of him maximum, and I would say, maybe, no, maybe about 10, and I would say 50% of those are him in uniform, and so very few photos of him as just a normal everyday person, but those, they're, they're little tiny windows into what his life was like. And I think that's the thing about these big old albums that you're saying people sort of throw out or you find, you, you know, you do find in auctions, don't you, or in charity shops where people have got these big old albums of black and white images that just are just little, little like little snapshots yeah. of people's lives. Yeah. So. Yeah, really important, isn't it? And yeah. you know, we, we've, got, we've got to treasure the memories that go along with the photographs. And I think that's the same with, I mean, we're talking about portrait photography there, um, but the same with landscape photography as well, which um, the images that I've been looking at for yours are sort of landscape. But I think um, holding on to that history and being able to talk about social history through images with landscape as well is really important. So why, why did you choose landscape over portrait or is it the same for you? I think the reason I've chosen landscape photography is that I think the la- going into the landscape and walking, um, you know, has a lot to do with mental health. And, and I do, uh, you know, suffer from stress. I, I feel that constantly I'm, I'm on the edge of things, you know, worrying about where things are going. Um, and I find going for walks and looking is part of my, my strategy for mental health, if you like. I, I go for walks with my wife and we both take cameras, my wife usually her mobile phone, me something else. And we use the time to look and to enjoy the surroundings. And I think there's a connection with mindfulness as well, that the absorbing nature of photography and looking does take you away from other worries. And it plants you in the present, it makes you appreciate, you know, something just a bit bigger than your everyday concern. So I suppose that's why I do it. And for the last period, I've chosen locations that I've returned to time and time again. And on the Flickr stream, you'll see, you know, quite a lot of photographs of Heber's Gill. I go back there regularly, um, and although it's familiar to me, even though it's familiar, I see something different each time, and I usually spend the time there not taking photographs, but looking and just seeing, really. It's quite meditative, and I suppose that's why you see a lot of landscape photographs, because it's me trying to relax, I think, is basically the simple answer to the question. <laughs> yeah, and um, for those listeners who don't know, we, uh, we all live in Ilkley in West Yorkshire, and Heber's Gill is a, well, what, how would you describe what it is, Mark? Well, it's kind of like a land apart. I was walking through there a couple of days ago with, with a friend who hadn't been there before. And they said it almost seems tropical. And when you walk through it, you do feel as though you're entering into a different part of the world, which is, is what I quite like. It's quite steep. It's a gully uh, that runs down from Ilkley Moor down towards the town. It's uh, heavily wooded. There's a, a well-made path that runs up along the side of it with little bridges so photographically it's incredibly rich but it also reflects the the weather as well so at the moment the the gill there's not very much water in 
But um, in the next few days, I expect there might be some storms. So I'll go back there and, and probably see that the, the gill has absorbed a lot of the peat from the moor. Uh, so it's changed colour, it's become more vigorous and that sort of thing. So when I look at the water, you know, I, I see, you know, I can read into it, you know, what else is going on in the world. And of course, the seasons as well, the whole, the whole wood changes almost daily th through the seasons. You know, you get the bluebells and the foxgloves and the, and the different forms of wildlife. And because of lockdown, we're starting, I think, to see more wildlife emerging. You know, I've seen deer on the edge of the moor during the day, which is, was unheard of before. And I think that's largely because humanity is sort of withdrawing from nature a little bit and allowing nature to come back, which I think is, is brilliant. But you only get that by being there and watching and observing over a period of time, which is, is, is what I'm trying to do, really. It does remind me of quite a magical sort of little pocket, a bit like the secret garden. It's the colours, I always find the colours, the colours of the moss, the greenery, it's very, very rich, very rich in colour. And it is a hard climb up to the top. <laughs> <laughs> Our listeners can go and look on, on Mark's Flickr dream of photos and see pictures of Heber's Gill. And, and it is kind of a magical, a land apart is a great way of thinking about it. I want to make a, a bit of a leap. And it might sound as though it's a leap into nerdiness, but bear with me. <laughs> I think we can come out the other side <laughs> safely and unscarred. I'm very interested to notice from your Flickr, that one of the cameras, or at least one of the cameras you're using, is a medium format camera. And yeah. that's a kind of camera that has much larger film than you get in a regular SLR. But also, it's quite a different experience taking a picture with something like that, I feel, without really knowing. So I guess my question is, what's the difference between taking a picture with a camera that's that much larger, and I guess slower to operate, compared with a digital or a phone or something like that? Yeah, well, I have to say that as soon as I picked up the medium format camera, um, I've got two. I've got um, a C330 Mamiya. It's a twin lens reflex camera. And I've got a Mamiya RB67, which is a beast of a camera, a huge, huge camera. Um, but they're both completely manual. There's no metering on them wow. or anything like that. Wow. Um, and, and actually, it's really, really exciting. I just love taking them out. Um, but, but once you've got over the, the hurdle of calculating the exposures, and I usually use, use my phone. Uh, I've got a, an exposure app on the phone to determine the exposure. And really, I have to take a tripod as well. The whole process is very, very slow. So I might go to a location and walk around it. Or I might have been over, over the period of a few days to a location and taken photographs on my phone. And then I'll go back and spend maybe a couple of hours at a place just looking and deciding on what I'm going to take a, a photograph of. And bearing in mind that the investment in the photograph is lugging the equipment up to the location, working out the exposure times and, the, and all the other details, and then when you get the film back, you have to develop it in a development tank, either process it using an enlarger or, uh, or scanning it. So the whole thing is a huge investment. So you're not going to snap away willy-nilly, uh, not least because it costs each time you, you take a photograph. So uh, what that does is force you to, to really think, now what am I going to take a photograph of it of and how am I going to frame the photograph and have I got the exposure right? But that whole process, I, I think, is magical. 
And one of the things that, that I'm, I'm finding is that actually, if you go through the process of looking and thinking and thinking about the, the composition and all, the, all those details, when you come to the point of clicking the shutter, you actually know whether you've got a good photograph or not. And what happens in the digital world is that you, what you do is snap away willy-nilly like, like some sort of dragnet. <laughs> you take the photographs back and then you see which ones meet your approval. For me, that's, that's delegating responsibility to the camera. Whereas with the film photography, you actually take responsibility for, for the photograph, really. That's the difference for me. It's the investment, really, I think is the difference. And I think sort of listening to you describe that process, there are some phrases and words there that perhaps people might not be familiar with because we've, I suppose, grown up with, with cameras that quite often do all that for you. So doing all, working out the exposures, et cetera, even on cameras that we had in sort of the 70s and 80s, they just did that yourselves. Whereas I do remember having it like a little light meter um, and working out the exposures and the sort of the timings. So do you think those uh, skills that photographers now going through college or university doing those courses, do you think those are skills that are maybe going to be lost? Or do you think people still use those skills, but in different ways? Well, I hope they won't be lost because now that I'm taking photographs with medium format film, um, I think my digital photography is improving immensely because of that. Because what it does is it, it forces you to look at the scene. Like Ansel Adams' zone system, for example, I think is really, really uh, interesting. And, and you know, if, you, if you Google Ansel Adams' zone system and, and learn a bit about that, that's really quite fundamental to understanding the tonal range of an image. But once you start to think like that, you start to think about how much light is entering the shadows, how many stops difference there are, there are to, the, to, to the highlights, uh, and you start to think about how you want to interpret uh, that's that scene on the film. Do you want it high contrast or low contrast? And that will that will come into the processing uh, to a degree. So um, once you understand a lot of those things, you can start to apply those to digital photography, which has different qualities. You know, the approach to highlights and shadows will be different for digital photography, but you'll start to understand the limits of digital photography. And you know what you do start to do is to compare the strengths of film photography over uh, over digital photography and the strengths of digital photography over film photography and they're quite different so so what you might end up doing is thinking uh, for the purposes of this photograph do I want to take a digital photograph or a film photograph so that then becomes a choice so that you're not limited by by one tool I mean I always like to think of it as um, you know if you talk to an artist and said you know the ideal brush has 50 million bristles on it or something like that it's much better than a a brush with one million bristles on it. <laughs> yeah. that, that's nonsense, isn't it? Yeah. Because it depends on the picture you're painting and how you want to interpret the scene, isn't it? So I, I think extending the range of tools that we have, you know, whether it's mobile phones, 35 millimeter, uh, medium format, large format, digital, I think the way to go is to, is to look at all these tools uh, and decide on which ones are appropriate for the kind of work you want to do, really. Oh, it sounds very, it's a very different world from the BBC news world, doesn't it? Because that's very fast paced. You'd be taking like whole rolls at a time and just expecting to get maybe one picture out of 36 or even two rolls. 
whereas this is just slow, thoughtful and careful. It's very different. Just to pick up on that, you commented on the news setting there. I think there's a, a difference between amateur photography and professional photography. And amateurs do tend to shoot lots and lots of stuff and then try to find the right image. But actually, in the professional world, you can't afford to take and process lots of stuff because usually there's a, there's a time constraint. So in, in my experience, you know, we talk about the sort of shooting ratio. How many rolls of film did you or how many minutes of film did you shoot to get one minute of usable content? And the, the aim was always to get the shooting ratio down so that you're wasting less film. But of course, it was about wasting less time as well because the whole process was about getting news stories out as quickly as possible or filming dramas or whatever as efficiently as possible. So the more you wasted, you know, that represented an incredible waste of time and money. So the drive there is to plan, to plan and to plan and to know in advance what you want to shoot and how you want to get the story to look, even if, if large elements of that have been unpredictable. So I think that's a discipline that um, amateur photographers could well do to adopt is, you know, how can you get to a point where almost every picture you're taking is usable rather than going through whole rolls of film and then finding just two or three are usable. Oh, the disappointment when you used to get your holiday snaps back through, um, through the post and somebody's head had been cut off or yeah. you hadn't, you know, you'd, you'd left the lens cap on or they were just terrible, out of focus pictures of the seaside or whatever. Oh, you'd be so disappointed. <laughs> I guess that's something that digital has given back to film almost. There's a sense in, in which the fast feedback you get from taking a digital picture and immediately knowing if it's come out yeah. can help. Yeah, and you, you, could, you can play around, can't you? You can, you can say, well, will, will this work or will that work? And that's something you don't feel inclined to do too much on the spur of the moment. You're a bit more conservative with film, aren't you? Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. I mean, like going back to the Polaroid thing on holiday, yes, we had 12 images and don't waste them. Think really carefully about what you're going to take a picture of. Yeah. So, so I quite like the idea that you, you use digital photography as a sort of notepad. You experiment, try things out, and then perhaps if you find a really good subject, you can take digital photographs of it, but also film shots of it as well and see, see what the difference is. So you're learning all the time. So it's the, whole, the whole thing is about learning, isn't it? So World Photography Day, has that what they've written down is that they want to inspire photographers across the planet to share a single photo with a simple purpose which is to share their world with the world. I thought that's really, really interesting. Let's encourage everyone who listens to this to go and go out and take a, a photo and share it. But if you wanted people, Mark, to see just one of your pictures from those that you've published, which one would you choose? Okay, well, let me just think. As we've been talking about um, Heber's Gill, I've got one or two pictures of Heber's Gill there. And there's one that I'm looking at here, which is. Um, it's a square image um, of Heber's Gill. It's quite a, an enthusiastic um, waterfall um, with a single rock balanced on one of the larger rocks right in the, in, the sort of, in the right third of the image. For me, that's a powerful image because it's a moment in time. The waterfall was looking like it will look at no other time because it's always changing. But also in that picture, I wanted to 
intentionally explore the idea that, that some things can either be out of place or fragile in a particular context. So I was looking at the combination of the rocks and the ferns and how fragile they seemed in the torrential water. Um, so I'll direct you towards that, um, that particular image. It's a picture of the waterfall. It's square. It was taken on the, on the Mamiya C330. And I quite like it because it, it sort of, I don't know, if you think I was taking it, taking it because I was probably feeling quite uh, fragile mentally, you know, I was going there to relax. You know, this, this is a time that I spent sort of looking at the waterfall and trying to, trying to use it as a means to link the ideas around power and flow and vulnerability and, and so on, you know, perhaps with my own uh, position in the world. Um, so, so maybe that, that's a good one. It, it says something about me, but it also says something about the place as well. We'll include a link to that. And I think that's, a, that's just a, a wonderful explanation that, that I think really, really adds to the richness. So thank you very much. I just, I just love it. I was like thrilled my youngest had applied to go to Falmouth to do uh, photography. Her end of year for college has been all uh, like cyanotropes. Is that how you say it? Cyanotropes. Cyanotypes, yeah. Yeah, so that's been really interesting, watching her do that process. Yeah, yeah. cyanotypes, another alternative photography is another great area, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely brilliant, what she, what she did with those. I think we need to talk photography, don't we? I think, I think you know, the combination of doing it and talking about it helps to unearth the value of it in, in many ways, doesn't it? And We've always felt when meeting at uh, Cafe Nero as part of the Oakley Flickr group that actually talking about it is a, is a very creative thing, isn't it? And it helps to, helps to sort of take you on to the next stage, really. Mark, thank you so much for coming and talking to us today. It's been a really incredible conversation. Well, thank you, Ian and Amanda. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks to Mark for joining us. Um, it was just such a lovely, inspirational chat. I just really want to pick up a camera and go and take some pictures now. Yes, me too. Perhaps we could even go out on a limb and publish something on the day's podcast Instagram. Instagram. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Our next episode will be out soon. And I think it's going to have some pictures. And there's hope yet for our Instagram. The best way not to miss out on that and our future episodes is to visit our website at dayspodcast.com. From there, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts and other podcast platforms and find links to our social feeds. We're desperate for approval, so please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram so that we can enjoy that warm but sadly transient feeling of validation. You're making us sound very needy. <laughs> Although we've reached the amazing milestone of episode six, we still need you to rate us in your podcast app and tell people about us, whether that's your friends, family, colleagues or your companions in the next socially distanced queue that you join. Yes, tell them all about us and the idiosyncratic but eclectic and subtly spicy day's podcast. We're spicy. Subtly, subtly spicy. <laughs> subtly spicy. <laughs> I'm not sure about being overtly spicy. That seems like a bad thing. <laughs> that sounds too fruity as well as spicy. Yes, fruity. We can save fruity for next time. Oh, fruity. Okay. <laughs> thanks for listening. And oh. come on. Thanks for listening and bye, bye for, for now. now. I like the fruity. We can be fruity.